because I'm short. In fact, I refer to myself lovingly as a tree stump with arms. I have two sisters, and they're both a lot taller than me. I just don't know what my dad's problem was. Um, my name is Debbie, and um, I am a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I am eternally grateful that these rooms were open um, when the God of my understanding brought me here. Um, oh, louder. I'm like I'm eating a thing. Yes. Down there? Down there? Does that work better? Okay. Normally, I don't need a microphone, so I was trying to tone it down a little bit. Um, I... I'm half Italian, half German. That is not a good combination. <laughs> I can tell you right now. I don't know how they ever got together in World War II. I just don't understand it. Um, I want to thank Kay for calling me after my bedtime. <laughs> Where's she at? <laughs> and there she was having I had to, I have to laugh because we don't answer our phone after 9 o'clock at night. And someone called my, they called my home phone, and I thought, I don't know who that is. And then they called my cell phone, and being a little obsessive and compulsive, if you call my cell phone, i got to get up and i got to get the message. Just have to. Otherwise, he can't go to sleep. And it was Kay, and I called her back. And she said, would you, would you come here and speak? We've had someone that, uh, who we need to keep in our prayers, another member of Al-Anon, who cur who's currently, uh, who's currently um, going through some cancer treatment. So um, I said yes. Yes, I'm coming, and yes, I will. And uh, 21 years ago, I would have said, are you out of your mind, and hung the phone up. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And uh, that's going to include a little bit of my history. I'm gonna, I really like to focus more on the steps, traditions, and concepts, and what it's like now, as opposed to the insanity of what it was like. As far as I'm concerned, most of your speakers have been really nice Al-Anons. They're great Al-Anons. They're great even untreated Al-Anons. I was hell on wheels. That's just it, you know. Um, um, I took ownership of a broomstick when I was very young, and um, I haven't stopped flying. <laughs> I am the oldest of three girls. My family, my, my mom and dad drank socially. Um, I am, again, I said Italian-German. There is alcoholism that runs rampant through my family. They are all functioning. And we were a happy group. And I liked them. I had more time with, more fun with them than I did with my own family because my mom and dad were very conservative. My aunts and uncles that drank would do things like go out in the middle of the night and put Volkswagens up against Beatles, up against telephone poles, and I thought that was fun. You know, that, to me, that was fun and a I'm an adrenaline junkie, and um, I'm I'm already a type the type of personality that's pings. I'm always got all this energy pinging on me, and then you put that. My husband's sitting here in the front row, going, "Uh huh," and then you put this you put this adrenaline hit on me, and I'm just gone. I'm gone, and I crave it. I crave it. Um, I also have to say this before I start, just to, just to let you know that, that my husband and I have a, a contract and that every time I mention his name, he pays me. <laughs> I take that money and I donate it to al -Anon. So if you continue to hear the name Warren, <laughs> it's because I want to be paid. Um, I'm grateful. He has 27 years in sobriety, and um, <laughs> but he's still in the center of the universe. So I have these no-line bifocals on. So if I keep lifting stuff up, it's because it's really difficult to see unless you can get it to the to the right level. Um, See, I was born in 1950, so now you don't have to guess what my age is. Um, again, I said I came, my parents were teachers, um, very middle class, upper middle class family, three girls. There's quite a bit of, there's seven years difference between my sister and I, and then there's 13 years different, 13 months between my middle sister and my youngest sister. 
Um, so I was basically an only child. Um, and I believe, like Palmer said, I was born the way I am. Because right from the shoot, right from the shoot, I perceived this world differently. And I was bound and determined to make this world fit my thinking. My thinking. And I'm going to give you an example of that because I came from a warm, loving, kind, generous. I, you know, I have nothing negative at all to say about my upbringing. Nothing. We traveled. We had fun. We laughed. My mother was a arms and legs and everything was going when she spoke and you know my father would sit on the couch being a German stoic and he'd just listen to her and nod you know and um, they didn't fight <coughs> and uh, you know I, I, I had mostly whatever I wanted I mean I didn't have everything I wanted but I, I had a good life I had meals I had a roof over my head and I got to do a lot of traveling because my parents were teachers and so I appreciate what they gave me, everything they gave me. They gave me a set of morals. They gave me, they gave me a map for living. Their relationship was extraordinarily wonderful. It's not that they didn't give me those things. It's what I did with what I got after it got to here and then down to here. It got all distorted. Um, my first experience where I realized that I was different and I was different. My mother would say no, and that was, for me, uh, approval to go do what I was going to do. No did not mean no to me. It meant just go do it, and I will yell at you when you're done doing it. And so the first thing I remember was that um, we were, my father was getting a pupil personnel degree up in um, Corvallis, Oregon. And, and uh, we'd meet each summer with these uh, a set of families that were all coming down to get the same degree from from Canada, from wherever. Is it still? Okay. 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 Alan, uh, coming down from, uh, they came down from Canada and they came from Washington. They came from different states. And we all met in Corvallis, Oregon. And, and uh, one of the families had four children and they were all about my age. And, and one day we were all playing and, and my mother asked me to go get a newspaper. And I said no. But the girl just a little older than me, Susan, said, oh, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. She was so, so cheery. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. And I didn't want to be interfered with. I didn't want to be, un I didn't want to be interrupted. And so she ran over there. She tripped, she fell, she hit the cement, and she cut her head. And she came back bleeding. And what I heard was it was my fault and that I could have stopped all that from happening. If I had only been in control... I could have stopped that event from happening. Now, that's not what was said. My parents and my friend's parents were not cruel. They were not cruel. You know, and my reaction to hearing that was that it was, well, I'll show you I'll hurt me. And I walked down to the St. Mary's River at the age of seven and contemplated throwing myself into this rushing river. Now, had I followed through on that contemplation, you would have a different speaker here today. <laughs> Something in my head told me, you know, just go back and be different. Be stronger. Don't feel anything. Be more aware. Follow. Stalk. Do everything yourself. And that way, that type of situation won't happen again. And um, fast forward, made it through high school. Again, I don't listen to my parents, and I got pregnant before I got married. And um, I married this guy. And he is the father of my children. He is still a very functional drinker. Um, and we, we played the dance of death for 10 years. I met him when I was 18, I had my, or 17, I had, I had 17, I uh, got married just a month before my 18th birthday, and I had my daughter in May. And, uh, you know, he wasn't a heavy drinker, he drank more than I did, he wasn't a heavy drinker, but it's a progressive disease, it's progressive. 
And I thought it was fun. I thought it was kind of fun. You know, he'd go, because we weren't old enough to buy alcohol in California, he'd go and he'd steal it. And that was daring and adventurous. I was the getaway driver. <laughs> you know, it, that, yeah, yeah. You know. <sighs> um, never occurred to me that that probably wasn't real appropriate behavior for a pregnant woman, let alone anybody else, but <sighs> I was immature. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, a couple of years later, we had another son. We had a son. And uh, um, it became obviously apparent to me that this man was not going to follow my direction. Um, he, uh, he would go out and he'd drink and he'd come home drunk, which was not, um, was not written into my playbook. It was not in my script. And, and um, I had always had some anger issues anyway. I'm very, I was very temperamental. I got that from my mother. And so I was also violent. And he would come home after the kids were in bed, and, and I'd go after him with whatever tool I had available at the time, be it a spatula or a pan or a broom or whatever it was, and I would teach him. I would teach him. I would, and I would be telling him, you don't do this to your kids. You don't drink. That's not, that's not appropriate. You get here before they get to bed. You give them goodnight kisses, and you do not drink. Period. End of discussion. And, you know, he's wobbling all over thinking, what did I do, you know? Um, and, and it went on like that. I mean, if you, if you don't know any different, you don't know any different. But I had this family that I came from that nobody acted like this, and I didn't know what to do. So I did everything. I did everything because I had to be in control. So I did everything. Um, after about 10 years, um, I realized that things weren't getting better. I, it was a busy 10 years. I put him through school. I put myself through school. We both got a bachelor's degree. I'd actually do his homework. Because um, <laughs> I, I needed him to be a teacher. My parents were teachers, and I had it lined out that he was going to be a teacher, so I did the homework. Uh, and uh, I went and got my bachelor's degree. Um, we had these two beautiful kids, and um, we worked different shifts, and we didn't see a lot of each other. And I cooked, I cleaned, I organized, I got the checkbook, I did his homework, um, I sprayed his uniforms, and... I was entirely too exhausted for anybody in their 20s. And you know what? It was his fault because he didn't do. He, he'd get home and he'd drink. And uh, I was not happy. So I made a decision. And I've never had an issue making a decision. I can always make a decision. It's just that my decision-making skills were broken. You know, they were, they were horribly broken. They were shattered like glass. So the decision that I made was that, um, to take the nut. Uh, the, the nut left the house and took the nutlets with her. I just walked out. I walked out. And by then, my kids were affected because I would scream at this man in the middle of the night. In fact, I remember one time my daughter coming out of her bedroom, and she said, Mommy, I'll be good if you stop yelling at Daddy. And uh, it had nothing to do with her, nothing. And that's when I decided that I needed to leave, and I did. I left. And um, being the sick person I was, I um, became, well, a couple of things happened. It, 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 I had this kind of avalanche of, of um, pain in my life that hit in my 30s. Um, I got a divorce. I moved back to California. I was living in Vermont. My maternal grandmother died. My mother died. And my dad died all within two years. And I had a sister that was on drugs and running wild, and a niece and a nephew, and a younger sister who was pill-popping and sleeping around with potheads. Now, that in and itself is not an excuse, but it's been an understanding why I fell off the cliff. And I did. I just fell off the cliff. I fell off. I was standing on the edge anyway emotionally after living in alcoholism, and I fell off. And when I fell off, I fell. Um, I would do, feel, act, 
play, pretend, do whatever it was not to feel the way I had to feel. I tried drugs. I tried alcohol. I'm a very ugly drinker. I drink two or three, throw up and pass out. Um, <laughs> I actually have an allergy to alcohol. <laughs> that makes, and then I won't drink for six months, you know. Um, I tried a variety of drugs. I can't sit here and say I didn't. They just never did for me what they were doing for everybody else. Um, I was a horrible mother. I was a horrible mother. I mean, I, I put a roof over the head. I fed them. I saw that they got to school. Um, but I abandoned them in, my, in our own home. In our own home. You know, I wasn't affectionate. I, I was angry most of the time. Um, I disappeared for a couple of days. I was a beer bed and breakfast girl. You know, I'd go down to the bar, get a beer, you know, meet the guy, go home. And then I, we'd wake up and have breakfast, and I was on hearing wedding bells. Now, you know, it, it's, it, they, none of these guys that I dated was crazy enough to marry me, which was probably a good proposition because I would be married more than three times at the moment. Uh, but the point was I was crazy. I was crazy. They weren't doing anything but what they've always done which is working and going to, and drinking, working and drinking. But I was the one. I've always wanted to be in the CIA. <laughs> because I have these, these skills that would put the BAU to shame. And I do. You know, in my, in my graduate record exam, I, point, I scored a 99.9 .9 on the analytical portion of it. It's almost unheard of. And because I have this internal, this brain that thinks this way, I became a certified professional stalker. <laughs> and I could find you anywhere doing anything. And literally, I could find you anywhere doing anything. So these men that I dated, once they, once they slept with me, of course, I was automatically in love and they were mine. I took hostages, they were mine, and then I would... I would go look for them every night. I'd go look for where are they at. When they weren't with me, I wanted to know who they were with, what they were doing, how much money they were spending. Um, you know, did I feel that it was okay? You know, and everything they did made me either happy or unhappy. And generally, it made me unhappy because I was dating alcoholics and drug addicts. You know, let's get real here. So, um, um, after about 10 years of being single and, and doing this routine, my, my children had both by then um, left the house. And uh, um, we're out doing their own thing. And we didn't really have, I can't say that we, we didn't have a relationship, but the relationship was not strong and healthy. Let me put it that way. Um, I, had, I had control of their lives um, to the extent that I told them where to live, you know, what jobs they needed, and how to spend their money. And if they didn't do it that way, then they got a lecture. That was it. They got a lecture. And then um, I went to work for a Fortune 500 company. And, uh, oh, i got to tell you this. I didn't tell you this. In between those 10 years, I decided that the problem was everybody else. The problem was everybody else. It was the way they were acting was why I was so crazy. So I went back and got a master's degree in counseling. And I was actually very good at it. I graduated cum laude, 4.0. And I was excellent at it. They gave me an award for how good of a counselor I was. And I was good. I was good. I was crazy. If you'd looked at my home life, if you'd looked at my life, you wouldn't want me near anybody. Especially, I liked marriage counseling. <laughs> But it was my solution. It was my solution with my thinking. Let's fast forward 10 years later. I'm alone. I don't do alone well. And I'm turning 40. And I don't do 40 well. <laughs> and I'm working for a Fortune 500 company. Um, because the counseling field wasn't paying me enough. And my other field is accounting. And it paid twice as much. And um, 
So I uh, had a phone relationship with a man that worked for the same company that I did. Now, he lived on the East Coast. I lived on the West Coast. And we were, I was, he was the program manager, and I was the, I was the accountant for this particular black ops program that we worked on with this, this employer I was with. And uh, we got to talking and talking, you know, and he made good money, and he had a house in, West, in Virginia, in Manassas, Virginia, and his wife had died, and oh, poor him, and he was so lonely, and I was so lonely. And uh, he said, well, why don't we meet? Because he flew out to the West Coast quite often because part of his program was being built out there. And I said, okay, we'll meet in Ventura. And we did. And um, now you can remember, I had been through a, a master's degree in counseling, which required six months of working in an institution where people from organic brain syndrome due to alcohol lived. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to an Anon meeting because these were all requirements of what I did to get this degree. So I was educated. I was aware. I had nothing to do with it. We met. He drank until I almost passed out. Of course, we slept together. Why would it be different? <laughs> I had done nothing differently. Why would it be different? And we got up the next morning, and he wanted my phone number, and I gave it to him. And I'm driving home, and my head is going. In my head, all those little voices that I had were, t were saying, oh, well, he's an engineer. He can't be an alcoholic. He can't be. He just can't be. That, it was a bad night. He was nervous. I mean, I had a list of excuses for this man. And uh, it took me, I don't know, six months before we were married. I quit my job. I put all my front, well, actually, I sold most of my furniture, put everything in the back of the truck, and moved to Virginia. And we'd had maybe two or three dates because we lived so far apart. We talked on the phone all the time. And I could tell some nights his speech was slurred a little bit, but that was okay. He'd lost his wife, guys. Dang. You know? Dang. You know, she was young. She died of cancer. I drink a little too. And um, so again, I, uh, one more time, I did the, the, the dance of death. And I call it that because I never came out of these relationships better than I went in them. I came out more incomprehensibly demoralized. I came out in shreds. I came out in shreds. And so did the person that I left behind. Because they would come in after their drinking episode, and they would, they would have to listen to me. It was forced. I mean, I, they were in the bathroom. I knocked the door down. They had to listen to me. And I was not a kind person. I would tell them how mean and cruel and ugly. And I didn't use those words, by the way. I had a very foul mouth. You know, and, and I would make demands of them that they were not capable, capable of giving to me. Absolutely at all. You know, you have to suit up and show up for work. He couldn't do it. He was drinking so heavily he'd lost his job. He already felt about this high. I mean, can you imagine being an optic fiber engineer and go to living in the back of a U-Haul truck homeless in a matter of about four years? I mean, the man was beat up, and, and I just piled it on. You know, it's... it's um, it's what I did, and I justified it, and I rationalized it, and I sanctified it because I was arrogant. I was manipulative. I was a control freak, and I had to be better than you. I had to be in control. Now, what got me into program, that was 21 years ago, was I came home, my ex-husband, Bill, was uh, trying to drink himself to death. And he was purple. If you've ever seen anybody that gets alcohol poisoning, they turn purple. They get really purplish color in their skin. And he could die if he wanted to. That's how distant I was from this relationship. I really didn't care anymore. Uh, but he couldn't do it in my house, actually in my apartment. That was a rule. You don't die in my apartment. 
don't go out of my apartment. So I call the police. And I tell him that. Tell him, yeah, he can't die here. <laughs> and, and the dispatcher says, well, is he dying, ma'am? I say, yeah, probably. He's purple, but he can't die in this house. And, you know, she didn't. She was trying to be helpful. And she says, well, I'm going to send the police over. I said, that's probably a good idea. No, that's not what she said. She says, well, has he hit you? Because that time, in that time in the state of Nevada, we lived in Las Vegas, Nevada, by the way, which I took a drunk to Las Vegas, Nevada. Guess what? He had more than one addiction. Um, he... And when I say I took it, I applied for the, for the Ph.D. program and got him in on an intern scholarship there. So it was not his choice. It was mine. Um, <laughs> I was the solution to his self-esteem problems. Um, but anyway, um, she said, well, did he hit you? Because that time in the state of Nevada, it was not illegal to drink yourself to death. It was not illegal. Now, this has been, oh, boy, 20, 21 years ago. And uh, you were entitled at that time to drink yourself to death. That was not the issue. Um, and so they, did, they, they wouldn't come out. They wouldn't come out. And I said, well, what do I have to do to get you out here? She says, he has to hit you. I said, okay, I'll call you back in five minutes. <laughs> so I went in, threw a bucket of cold ice water on this man, which um, out of his stupor brought him up off the bed, and, and I, you know, was pushing at him and poking at him and beating on him and yelling at him, and he took a swing, and he hit me. And uh, I called the police and said, he hit me. Will you come out now? And they came out. They came out, and they did take him away. They took him to a detox center. And the nice young policeman said to me, uh, is there domestic issues going on here? I said, yeah, he drinks like a sieve. He says, well, have you talked to anybody about this? No, I have a counseling degree. I don't need to. <laughs> I'm not the problem. He just needs to go away. And he handed me a card. And somewhere in my little tiny pea brain, I decided I was going to hold on to that card. I have to back up just a minute because I, I forgot a very important story. And I think my husband is going, yeah, you did. We lived in Manassas, Virginia, because I just want you to know how crazy I was. We lived in Manassas, Virginia, and we were driving home from a thank God it's Friday's where we had been thrown out. We had been thrown out because he was drinking so heavily, and I was screaming at him that management asked us to leave as I was, you know, shaking him. And we were driving home, and I don't remember what we were arguing about, but I decided that I was going to leave him in the middle of a field. And he was just going to have to walk to our country home, which was about 10 miles outside of the city. So I drove off onto this field in one of my brownouts. And I parked the car, and we got out. And I was enraged, enraged. And remember my background. I don't know about other, I don't know about other ethnicities, but Italians can be very temperamental, really temperamental. And I was clenching my fists, and I was screaming at him, and I was threatening him, and I was doing all my usual stuff. And apparently, he started choking me. I don't know he's choking me. I'm too mad. I'm not fighting for my life. I'm beating on him with the keys. Well, someone drove by the field, because it was at a big inter inter intersection in Manassas, and called the cops. This guy's choking this woman out in the middle of the field. My first recognition that there were seven police cars surrounding us, first recognition, didn't hear them drive up, didn't hear the sirens, didn't hear anything, was when they turned their lights on. And I looked up and I thought, what the hell? What are they doing here? I don't have a problem. Of course, they dug him off of me, and I proceeded to ask them what they were doing there. It was none of their business. And uh, they said, well, ma'am, he's choking you. I said, well, I can take care of myself. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, we're going to take him in just to let him to detox one more time. I said, no, you're not. No, you're not. This cop was short and stocky. And I have to say this, he had one of those little Hitler beards. Yeah. 
and uh, bless his little heart, he just had no idea what he just said to me. Because if my husband was arrested, he would have lost his uh, top secret clearance. And um, I wouldn't go let that happen. And so as my husband is willingly getting in the back of the police car, I am screaming at the top of my lungs, and they're trying to calm me down. And finally, because I, I, I'm telling them, you will not arrest him. I'm not pressing charges. He didn't do anything wrong. I can beat him up anytime I want. But, you know, blah, 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 blah. And finally, this little policeman said, ma'am, I think we're going to have to take you in, too. And I said, you're right. You are. Hit him right in the mouth. S-O-B. Who the hell do you think you are? I got arrested. I didn't cooperate. I didn't cooperate the whole time I was there. I was there for four hours, and let me tell you, I made that jail miserable. I never stopped screaming. I never stopped hollering. I never stopped saying abuse. And now you got to remember, I hadn't been drinking. I did not have one drop of substance of any kind in my system. Nothing. Zero. Not even caffeine. They finally let me go. They called a taxi. So that's the person I was 21 years ago when I came in this program. That's who I was. That's who I was. I walked through these doors because of a member of AA, and I will be entirely grateful that this man was willing, willing to step out of that, out of AA into Al-Anon and 12-step me. I believe if it would have been an Al-Anon, I probably would have said no. I'm not doing this because he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and he had a big old hook that he'd hook on. He said, you know, if you go to AA, it'll help him. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that because I, if you go to Al-Anon, I'm sorry, it'll help him. And I thought, oh, well, hell, yeah, I'm educated. I can do that. You know, I'm going to go get the recipe because it's got to be in the food. It's got to be in the food because we've tried that medicine that made him throw up when you drank. That didn't stop him from drinking. So it's got to be the way they feed them. Feed. I don't know why I was so obsessed about food. That had to be the way they feed them. And I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and it was the butterfly group at the uh, Thai Club in Las Vegas, Nevada, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I had to walk through a bunch of alcoholics to get to the Al-Anon room. I don't know about the rest of you, but that was very intimidating. But I walked up to that door, and there was this young man standing there, and he said, welcome. And he put his hand out, and he introduced himself. And he was a newcomer, but that was his job. That was his service job. And I kind of put my hand out there, and I just looked at him. I looked at him, and I thought, oh, my God, there's a whole room of them. What am I going to do now? I had exit plans going on in my head. I had, you know, I had, well, what happens if you start a fight? What I'm gonna, how I'm going to intervene and break it up? I mean, you know, all this crazy thinking. Because I had to be in control of my entire environment. And I walked into that Al-Anon room, and I sat in the back, away from everybody. And I just sat there. People come up and said hello, and I just shake my head, and I sat there. And you know what? I can't tell you that I heard anything that was said there. Absolutely not. I did, I did read the steps on the wall, and I thought, I don't think I can do this because they have that G word in there. And I wasn't against the G word. I had nothing to do with it. But I knew that the God of my understanding had already given me what he wanted with me. What, and he wanted me to be strong and in control and to be his helper. I was his right-hand woman. And I knew that in my heart. He needed to help the helpless. Not me. I was in no way helpless. So I sat there and I listened. And uh, I had a woman, and I'm going to call her old. She's probably my age at the time. And her name was Helen. She'd been in Ellen a long time. And that meeting closed, and she came running over to me. And I'm just like, oh, you know, it's a little tiny thing. Like tinier than I am, and that's that's tiny. And uh, she threw her arms around me, and she gave me this big old hug. And I was kind of like Sheldon. I don't know if any of you read, you see Big Bang Theory, but I was like this. And 
And she just kept patting me on the back. And she's whispering in my ear. And she says, honey, you just come back. You just come back. You're right where you belong. You just keep coming back. We want you here. We want you here. Because see, I wasn't wanted any place. I wasn't wanted in the bars where my husband drank because of my behavior. In fact, I was banned from several bars in, in, in Nevada. I was. I was banned from bars in Las Vegas, and I didn't drink. Now, go figure. My behavior got me banned from those bars. Um, we want you here. And so I, I left that room thinking, not thinking they want me, even though that's what I heard, but I think they need me. They need me. And that's okay. Whatever gets you here is what gets you here. You know, whatever gets you here is what gets you here. And I decided at that time that I would come back. I would come back. So next Saturday, not realizing there was 75 meetings a week in Las Vegas, I came back. And after the meeting, one of the people in that meeting, I don't even remember who now, it's been so long ago, she grabbed me and said, you know what? We'd like you to be the coffee maker. We'd like to give you a coffee commitment. Can you do this for six months? Can you show up every Saturday morning and make this coffee for six months? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I can be real committed. I should have been committed, but I could be real committed. <laughs> now, you have to understand, I didn't drink coffee, and I certainly had never made coffee. So, so I went around, proceeded the following week to ask everybody I knew how to make coffee in this coffee machine because I had to do it right. It had to be perfect. And you know what? I did. I made that coffee for six months. I made that coffee, and I suited up, and I showed up for that one hour a week where there was not insanity in my life. They said, get a sponsor. They didn't say, oh, it's optional. They didn't say, oh, when you're ready. They said, get one. And there was another Italian woman in that room who'd been in program quite a while. She reminded me of my mother, and I liked what she had because I love my mother. And I asked her to be my sponsor, and her name was Joe. And she says, yeah, you going to do what I tell you to do? Probably not. She says, well, you at least think about it? I said, yes, that'll do. That'll do. And she gave me a lot of good orderly direction because I was wild. I was wilder than March hair. You know, she, after, after about a month, she suggested that maybe I didn't want to go drag him off of bar schools anymore. It certainly apparently wasn't working because he kept going back. She said, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is the definition of insanity. And I went, oh, I'm not insane. So, I, you know, I, can, I don't have to follow him. And that was probably one of the hardest things I ever had to do, was to go home after work and not, not go find out where he was. Because, again, you've got to remember, I'm a certified professional stalker. In Las Vegas, I could find him. I could find him. And uh, so that's the first, that was the first behavior. She never said, she never said, oh, you have to get a God. No, oh, you have to, you know, read the steps. And oh, you have to do that. And, you know, I, I wasn't capable of doing any of that. It was real obvious to her that, first of all, I had to, in order for me to even get any level of clarity in my brain, I had to stop doing what I was doing. I had to stop throwing bottles at him and breaking plate glass windows. I had to stop trying to run him over him with the truck. I had to, I had to stop these behaviors because they were creating an environment of homicide or suicide. And because I was sober, it would have been homicide. And he wasn't. And she didn't want me in jail. So she was my sponsor and, and she told me to call her every day, and, and that's a very difficult thing for me to do still today is to call somebody every day. Um, I don't always do it, um, but today I have a relationship with a sponsor in 21 years, and she knows that if my knickers are in a twist at the slightest, she's, I'm going to be on the phone to her, and we see each other quite often. Um, but she told me to call me every day, and, and I'd call her, and I, and I would say, well, he's out there doing something. And she said, well, what are you doing? Have you eaten today, Debbie? No. Did you take a shower this morning? No. What's your house look like? What's the condition of the house? How many weeks of dishes do you have? Because she'd been over to my place. And so she said, you know what? Just for now, 
just for now, do what you need to do. What's your list? What's your list? She just make me make lists. Because I'm so analytical, lists are a good thing for me. And she'd make me write it down. And I couldn't go look for him till I got all that done. And then I had to call her first. And she'd give me more things on the list. You know. Read this page in the ODAT. Read, read, well, we didn't have some of the literature that we have now, we didn't have back then. So, um, and, and, and after a period of time, after a period of time, and I'm going to say a period of time because I did the Ellen on Waltz for about three years with step one, two, and three. Um, I was a real sick person. I, you know, I, I had to continue to do it. I understood that I had an illusion of control and that step one, step one, took that veil of illusion and eroded it day by day by day. I had no control. I was truly powerless over people, places, and things. Step two was a hope step for me. I was not alone anymore. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I had spent 40-some-odd years, or actually 20-some-odd years after I'd lost my parents, being entirely alone. You know, you've heard that song, it's you and me against the world. Well, it was just me against the world. And I was at war. And I don't like losing. I don't like losing. It's not in my nature to not be right, not to lose. <laughs> um, I learned to let go of that man. I learned to let him be gone for three days and not know where he's at. I learned to let him live in his disease. Now, I wasn't happy about that. I wasn't happy, joyous, and free, believe me. But I learned to do that. And as I learned to do that, I also learned to sleep, to breathe, to eat, to clean my house, to show up and suit up and be attendant at my job, not just a body at my job but truly at my job. Um, I gained a higher level of serenity than I had had in a long time, that I'd had a long time. And I only made it through step two. I uh, came to step three. And for me, step three is all about possibilities. I had defined where I was going to go in my life, what I was going to do in my life, and how it was going to be. And when I did that, I placed myself in a sealed box, and it was a cement box. And there were no windows, and there were no exits. There were no possibilities. It was all there. And step three gave me possibilities. You know, I found that higher power of my understanding. It, I, had already, I had always acknowledged that some, something exists, well, like I said, I was just kind of the right-hand man, and I, you know, on that button as we get shot out into the world, he'd pushed independent, don't need me. And uh, so I learned. Does that mean that I automatically turned everything over to him? I don't think so. <laughs> Not at all. Um, but the possibility, the possibility that I didn't have to be Atlas with the weight of the world on my shoulders anymore was given to me. That possibility. And um, I love that possibility. You know, I ran with that possibility. And because I had that possibility in my mind, I went on to step four. And what I discovered, I uncovered in step four, is the truth about me. And the truth was, is I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I'm a worthy person. I'm worthy of love. I'm worthy of quiet. I'm worthy of taking care of my health. I'm worthy of, of uh, being a loving person. I don't have to yell and scream and throw things at you to get you to like me. You know, I'm a worthy person. I'm a worthy person. And that the disease of alcoholism had taken all those defects of character and had put them up on a neon sign. You know, they were brilliant anymore. And all they had to do was slowly but surely ask the God of my understanding to take those bulbs down. You know, just take them down. Because I don't need that sign anymore in order to feel like I exist. Uh, 
um, by now my, my original sponsor had left town and um, I got a new sponsor and uh, I had I, I got a divorce um, I chose not to do this anymore I chose not to do it and it really had nothing to do with him it had nothing to do with him and everything to do with me making a choice a choice for myself a choice for myself oh I can hear the difference now a choice for myself and um, I didn't have to be mean I didn't have to be vindictive I just said I'm simply divorcing you and uh, I paid for the divorce and um, he went on doing what he always did he drank and told me I was it was my fault and, and that was okay that's what he needed to do um, I went on to do five six and seven with a new sponsor actually I did four I went through my four my fourth step again and I went on to do five six and seven with a new sponsor and uh, step five was the first time I had ever told people things about myself that um, I just would have felt so shameful I would have felt so shameful um, I would have I, I I had this shame joy bond that I feel shame when I feel joy and I did I was ashamed when I felt good and telling somebody these stuff made me feel good because I was then not the only one walking around with it when they say we're as sick as our secrets they know what they're talking about you know and she stood there and she gnawed and she laughed with me and um, we'd walk around the track and and um, I became willing without fighting and that was a whole new behavior for me and step five I became willing without fighting um, step six is again it, it, I became willing to stop fighting and the willingness to um, have God entirely I got hooked up on that word entirely as I think a lot of us do because I don't know that I'm entirely ready to do anything you know the point was I was as ready as I was gonna be so just do it just do it she said she's a Nike symbol just do it and I just did it and oh my goodness if I had known what was gonna happen oh if I had known where my life was gonna go um, I'd have done it anyway, but not at that point, probably. <laughs> um, then I went on to step seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, and um, I learned a few things. Um, I believe I had a genuine transformation in step seven, and uh, because I had then had a relationship with a God of my understanding that I had never had, and. Um, I asked him to remove those shortcomings and one of the shortcomings I had that made me so angry was unresolved grief I had unresolved grief I had a lot of unresolved grief I had unresolved grief about the men I'd been married to I had unresolved grief about the fact I didn't have relationships and I had an unresolved grief that my parents had the audacity to die when I was 30 years old and that I had to bury them and take care of my little sisters because they're quite a, a quite a bit long, younger and I had a lot of unresolved grief because grief turns into anger when you don't walk through it and step seven helped me get there step seven helped me get there help me walk through that for the first time in my life you know um, my defects were getting in the way of my relationship with others and uh, um, step seven helped me resolve that um, eight just ask you to make a list come on I make a list I put far too many people on that list my sponsor said I, you know, I didn't, I, I, you know, I don't have to make amends to people that, that, um, I didn't have to make amends to my sister's drug dealer. <laughs> well, I was mean to him. I called him a nasty name because he was selling my sister drugs, you know. No, you don't have to make amends to the drug dealer, Debbie, you know. And as usual, I did everything excessively. And then I went on to step nine. And I took responsibility for my actions. I took responsibility for the first time for my actions. 
And I went back to those people that I could because I was a very isolated person. There wasn't a lot of people to go back to. And I didn't have financial amends because I'd not only pay my bills, but I'd pay your bills and your bills and your bills. Finances were never my issue. I'm Not that I had a lot of money, but I was good at bill paying. Everybody's bills. You know, the alcoholics, too. Um, now, they had a lot of financial amends because if they'd actually put it on their credit card, I wasn't going to pay for it. Um, but my stuff, I, I kept current. And that, that's a blessing because my father taught me that. Um, and step nine, I learned to take responsibility for all the actions without an excuse. See, I could take responsibility before that, but I had an excuse. Well, that's because. Well, that's because. No, that's because, you know, and uh, there is no excuse for the way I treated my children. There isn't. There is none. I can't take it back. It happened. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I, that doesn't make it right. And I knew that. That doesn't make it right. But this program gave me 10, 11, and 12. And it gave me the ability over the last 21 years to repair those damaged relationships. And you know, today I can say those relationships are repaired, and I know that unequivocally. I have six grandkids that when they are in distress, as they are because they come from alcoholic homes, they call grandma. They want grandma's words of wisdom. They want grandma's listening ear. They want grandma's love. Her unconditional love. You know, um, I have two, two children. I, my daughter, who's in Al-Anon for 16 years. And um, making progress. <laughs> She's making progress. I have a son-in-law who's got 10 years of sobriety. Um, I have a son who um, lives with um, a lady that could certainly use these rooms and has been given the literature and knows where I go, you know. It's not unaware of Eleanor. Um, and and because of the gifts and because of the patience, tolerance, and acceptance that was shown me here, I've been able to give it all back. I've been able to give it all back. And I still give it. I still give it. My son is was 42 this January. And for the last, I, want on, I have to say on and off again, he has uh, dabbled in the art of drugs. And I say dabble because there's times when he didn't dabble and times when he has dabbled. You know, I, while he was in the military, he didn't do drugs. While he was not in the military, he did do drugs. Sometimes when he had a good paying job, he didn't do drugs. And then sometimes he did do drugs. And, and I have to say that there was a period of time um, after he got out of the military that he was a methamphetamine. He did methamphetamines and, uh, and pot. And, uh, you know, he made a decision after he got pulled over one night that um, while we were living in Las Vegas, and I had told him that, um, you know, it's your life and I love you enough to let you live in that trash can. I love you enough. You can be anything you want to be, and if that's what you choose to be, it's not going to change my love for you at all. And it didn't. It didn't. I loved him. And he made the decision that living in that trash can was no longer acceptable to him. And he stopped methamphetamines. I'd like to say he stopped everything. Not, nah, you know. Um, he continued to smoke his pot. And, and, but it was a start. It was a start. And we, and we congratulated him on that start. We let, them, we let him know how proud we were of that start. You know, he'd float in and out of AA and NA, and, um, you know, he had to do it his own way. And, and my husband and I were, were loving and kind and had to say no a lot of times, you know. And that was a complete sentence in my family today. And, and then we, um, June of this last year, he, uh, he stopped smoking pot several years ago, but he was still into synthetic pot and, uh, and finally, after losing several well-paying jobs, and uh, he said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. Mommy, come over to the house. And he was crying. And I said, you don't have to. You don't have to. How are you going to stop smoking? 
So I just, I stopped talking. I said, yeah, if you don't pick it up, you're not going to have the issue. You know, when he said, he said, okay, I got to think about this. And I said, you think about this. You think about this. But we love you no matter what. We love you no matter what. And um, June of this last year, he decided to um, stop smoking synthetic pot, and he has been drug-free ever since. What has happened in that period of time is he's got a great job, and he just got his, uh, I don't know what you call that thing, performance review, and he got an A in all categories. And he was just so proud. I came over there. He says, look, Mom, what's on the refrigerator? you got to come see what's on the refrigerator. you got to come see what's on the refrigerator. Well, it's on the refrigerator. It's like, you know. And, and it was his performance review. And you know what? That's a direct result of this fellowship. He doesn't go to AA. And we don't have a lot of NA in Abilene. But you know what? He's involved in it because his parents are all in it. His sister's in it. His son-in-law. I mean, his brother-in-law's in it. There's, he, he, there's nowhere he doesn't go that he doesn't hear the language of our love. He doesn't hear it. So, you know, he, he has to hear it. It's all there. So a couple of things I've learned. I'm going to wrap it up. Um, I learned that just for today, failure is feedback. It's not failure. It's just feedback. If I, was, if I could do everything perfectly, I wouldn't need you people. <laughs> I wouldn't be here. So failure is feedback. Life is an experiment. Life is an experiment. Try new things. Try something new. Whether it's food, jumping out of an airplane, rafting down a river, taking a cruise in the Mediterranean, spinning your car on the ice, I love that one. <laughs> Try something new. Relax. We were sitting up here, and I told Michelle, I said, just breathe. If you breathe, you'll survive. Just breathe. In and out. In and out. Uh, remember that waiting is a behavior. That's a behavior. I don't have to do everything today. I can wait. It's behavior. It's a choice. It's okay. It's okay. Today I have to be accountable. I learned accountability here. And being the, delegate, I'm account being the delegate, I'm accountable. I'm accountable to everybody in West Texas. And does that mean sometimes that people are angry with me? Oh, you better believe it. And that's okay. They're entitled. And I can listen to them. And I don't have to correct them. And I don't have to shun them. And I don't have to cut them out of my lives. I just have to listen. And it also doesn't mean that I have to agree with them. I can agree to disagree today. But I'm accountable. I'm accountable. Um, I'm a human being today as opposed to a human doing. And that's why my husband and I laugh a lot. We went out to dinner um, last night with a couple of the speakers and their hosts. And they were just cracking up. But, you know, we have this great relationship, and, and uh, we laugh a lot, and we tease each other a lot. And, and uh, we work those 12 steps and 12 concepts in, in our relationship to the T. And uh, so we're human beings today, not human doings. Um, and I think one of the most important things that I learned in the last 21 years is that faith is taking the next step when I can't see the whole staircase. When I can't see that whole staircase and I'm willing, willing to take that next step, um, I have that faith and that faith grounds me today regardless of what I have to face. And 2013 was a very challenging year for, for us. My husband had some health issues and um, I wasn't exactly getting my way because we planned a cruise and I was not happy about that. And, and, um, so my, my word for 2014 is spontaneity. Because, see, I was the problem, not him. His, his back surgery was not the problem. It was me. It was me and my reaction to me having to cancel that cruise <laughs> and a, a, a variety of other things. But um, I decided that um, I need to let go of some of that rigidness that I still retain, that type A personality analytical, and try to be a little bit more spontaneity spontaneous, a little bit more artsy, you know. Um, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm sure there's things that I haven't said that I would normally say. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, 
and I've appreciated the opportunity to hear all the speakers. Um, I never leave a conference without um, taking away more than I ever came with. So thank you very much.